Welcome to CrimeWire, a program dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved crimes and educating the public about various types of crimes and how to avoid becoming a victim. If you'd like to submit a case to CrimeWire or suggest a topic for a future show, please email us at thenewcrimewire at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook at The New Crime Wire. My name is Denny Griffin, and on today's show, my co-host Delilah Jones and I are joined by Phyllis Cook Anderson, whose brother Ronnie Anderson was shot and killed in Gulfport, Mississippi on September 26, 1967. At the time, authorities declared the fatal headshot was self-inflicted. Over 35 years later, her father, Deputy Dan Anderson, was shot dead in the driveway of his Gulfport home. His death was also ruled a suicide. Phyllis doesn't believe her brother or father killed themselves. She is sure they were both victims of a group called the Dixie Mafia. And today she will tell us why. Phyllis, welcome to CrimeWire. Thank you, Mr. Denny, for having me. I'm glad to be here. Uh, you know, I think uh, I do some uh, writing and I write about organized crime. Generally, the Italian America Mafia. Uh, I'm not all that familiar with the Dixie Mafia. Would you would you begin by telling uh, me and the listeners what is the Dixie Mafia? Well, let me start by saying that I was totally unaware of the Dixie Mafia until 2013 when I spoke to a cold case investigator. But the involvement of the Dixie Mafia and the corruption that they've led was what led to the story and my being here today So, in the involvement of my brother and dad's murder. But let me say they began in the 1960s. They were just a loosely knit group of traveling criminals or just a bunch of white guy thugs that got together, and they were robbing and murdering, drug trafficking, burglary, you know, money laundering. They first started out as a state line mob. They were from an they were uh, founded by Mike Gillick in Biloxi, Mississippi, in the late '60s. They are still present today. They were in Louisiana, Arkansas, Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, Texas, Florida, Mississippi. They would kill, murder, rob anything that they could do for money. That was what they did. Mike Gillick was also a protector of a guy named Kersky Nix McCord. And the reason I mentioned this Kersky Nix McCord, because he was one of the gang's most notable members. And in 1965, he was like 22. He was uh, charged with murder of a Frank Corso out of New Orleans. He is now in the Indiana prison, the maximum prison for life. There were some books written on the Mississippi mud. Uh, by Edmund Humes, but they are also the ones that were involved in a lot of the people and the older members will remember a movie called Walking Tall with Buford Pussard. Well, Toehead White and Kersky Nixon, and they were involved in the murder of Pauline Pusser on August the 12th of 1967. My brother was murdered one month and 14 days later on August, I mean, on September the 26th of 1967 by this same bunch of gang members. They uh excuse me, Phil, you've obviously done a lot of research on uh on the I'm gonna call it the Dixie Mafia or DM for short. Uh 
were you, as, as you developed uh, the information you've developed, were you surprised at how far back these people go, this organization goes, and some of the stuff they've done? You know, Mr. Denny, I was. And what made it so bad, and I guess you could say so heartbreaking, is once I found out in 2013 about the mafia, it was like when I went back and started reading, it was like I was reading my life story because I remembered incidents and things that were said and told and the involvements of the mafia. In 1987, they had murdered a judge, Vincent Sherry, who was, the, my dad was bailiff for Judge Vincent Sherry. He was a prominent circuit court judge, and his wife was city councilman. She was running for mayor in 1987. Well, they were murdered by members of the Dixie Mafia. And I remembered that murder, and my dad had protected me and kept me from knowing about this because of his involvement, I guess you could say, in what happened was in 1987 when they were murdered. I come home early from work. And my, I call my dad every day. I mean, my dad was my hero. So I call my dad, and as I was talking to him, he asked me, you know, I asked him, I said, well, hey, Daddy. I said, you're home early. I said, how did your day go? But Daddy started talking about that someone had murdered Judge Sherry and his wife, Margaret. And I, when I asked him how, he said they had shot him. Well, he went into telling me all about the crime scene, the positions of the bodies, the cookies in the saucer, the milk, everything that had happened concerning that murder, my dad explained to me. But later on that night, he did not want to talk about it anymore. And it was like from that time on, he never would discuss it. He never would talk about it. Uh, in 1997, I was in a Waffle House in uh, Pennsylvania, I mean, in uh, Peachtree Industrial in Atlanta, and there was a man sitting there with a woman behind me, and they made the comment. I heard them say, yeah, they shot old Sherry uh, several times and got Margaret too. Well, I immediately turned around because I remembered the story that Daddy told me of Judge Sherry and his wife. So when I turned around, I said, excuse me. I said, but are you talking about Judge Sherry and his wife in Gulfport? I associate everything with Gulfport instead of Biloxi because I was aware of everywhere everyone lived. The man never spoke. He just stood up. The woman never spoke. They paid for their stuff, and they left. Well, as they left, and I watched them leave, well, I called my dad when I got home, and I told my dad. Then my dad went bananas. He told me to never mention that again, never tell anyone what happened. He asked me what the man looked like. I said, just a scruffy old guy. The woman was sort of a scroungy-looking woman. As we talked, my dad told me, my dad said, oh, my God. He said, that is John Ransom. said, he is the hit man that he and Pete Hallett are the ones that killed Judge Sherry and his wife. Well, after I investigated and found out through the years now, yes, he was, and he was gotten out of Lawrenceville, Georgia, as the hit man. But my dad, like I say, he never talked about it anymore. He did not want to, me to be involved or be aware of what was going on. So, yes, I've done a lot of research, and I even found pictures in my dad's things of Kursky Nix, Bobby Joe Fabin, Mike Gillick, Toehead White, the guy that is alleged to kill Pauline Pusser in the, Dixon, in the Walk and Tall. I have pictures of them all sitting at my dad's kitchen table playing cards. Uh, this uh, 
when you were in the Waffle House and it turned out the uh, the alleged hitman was uh, sitting behind you, when your dad explained to you who he was, did you uh, what went through your mind then? Did you get a little chill up your spine that you were that close to this guy? I did. Now this was in 1967. I mean 97, as far as the hitman. But then there was also an incident in 2002 concerning the death of my brother and the involvement of that. Not to confuse the two. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to that in a minute. And in fact, uh, fellas, let's back up just a bit. Um, sure. Now that uh, we have a little background on the Dixie Mafia. Let's go back and just tell us a little bit about your brother Ronnie and your father and what life was like in Gulfport, Mississippi. Sure, Danny. Well, my dad had moved to Gulfport. He was a frequent visitor at the VA hospital due to a back injury from an auto wreck in way back early in the 40s. So early 50s, he and mom divorced, and he moved to uh, Gulfport, staying at the VA quite frequent due to his alcohol addiction. My dad had a severe alcohol addiction and gambling. If there was gambling anywhere, dad was there. So I think during the time of the VA hospital, he met a lot of, I'm going to call them the thugs and the Dixie Mafia stuff. But um, daddy finally married a lady named Rose Gaucher, who had, or that was her name now, but she had two boys and daddy they divorced, and Daddy started working for the Harrison County Sheriff's Department. He was sworn in under the Sheriff Roy Hobbs, who was later notorious for his drugs and money laundering and involvement in with the Dixie Mafia. Daddy worked there from the 1960s on up, and I guess it's bailed up until he passed away. And then as my little brother, when he was 15... He went to stay with my dad. Ronnie had polio when he was three, so he wore a leg brace, and life wasn't easy for him, and he didn't get along with my stepdad. He had possibly been there a year, year and a half whenever he was murdered. So I'm thinking Ronnie had just moved out into a boarding house is what they called it, a rooming house then. I guess we would call it an apartment now. But he had just moved out with this guy, Jeffrey Dennis Bass, who was a year older than Ronnie, who was the nephew of my dad's ex-wife. So I think that is how Ronnie became involved. I got, was associated with some of the members of the Dixie Mafia because I later found out that this Jeffrey Bass was a member of the Dixie Mafia. But, you know, Ronnie was working at McDonald's and was doing great. So, and like I say, Dad worked at the Sheriff's Department. He was later lieutenant in the Harrison County Sheriff's Department whenever he was murdered. But that, you know, at that point, I really don't know how long or how much involvement was going on before he was, he was killed, Denny. Are you there? Yeah. Uh, what do you think happened, Phyllis, that would have made Ronnie a threat to these people where they would have wanted to do him harm? In 1967, September the 26th of 1967, I called my dad. I had a weird feeling that something was wrong with Ronnie. So I called my dad and I told him that I wanted Ronnie to come stay with me for a while, that I was worried about him, asked him if Ronnie was okay. Daddy said, sure, as far as he knew, everything was going fine. There was no issue. 
Daddy went over, took Ronnie some shoes, um, left when he said he took him some money. He said Ronnie was ironing his shirt and was doing great whenever he left. The next day, Daddy, or Daddy said within an hour after he got home, he got a knock on the door from a sheriff deputy that he needed to go to Memorial Hospital that Ronnie had been shot. And then he, Daddy was met at the ER by his ex-wife, Rose, and she told Daddy that he was deceased. But there were two different stories as to what happened on Ronnie's death. One was told by this Jeffrey Bass, who was his roommate. When he was questioned, he said Ronnie was sitting on the bed playing with a gun and it went off and shot him. They questioned this little young girl named Kathy, who was his girlfriend. She explained that she and Ronnie were arguing and that Ronnie shot himself. So there were two conflicting stories, but nothing was ever found. And I truly believe that whenever my dad thought that, you know, I called him, wanted Ronnie to come stay with me, Daddy jumped at the chance to get Ronnie out of Mississippi, hoping to get him away from some of the gang members that were there. But they have this code that they go by that, you you know, the only way you leave is in a pine box. And I guess that's the way Ronnie got to leave because they were afraid that if he left, that he may tell some of the things or the activities that were going on and the things he had heard. So they murdered my old brother to keep him quiet and to keep him from ever telling anything. So officially at the time, uh, your brother's death was... Well, depending on which story you believed, it was either an accident, he was playing with the gun, and the gun accidentally went off, or that uh, he got in an argument with uh, this Kathy woman and, and then shot himself. Um, so the the police, at least at that point, were not looking at this as a homicide, right? They were looking at it either as a suicide or an accident. They knew, Mr. Denny, because Ronnie had been, before the medical emergency was ever called, they did not have 911 then, but before the medical emergency was ever called, Ronnie had been bathed, his clothes changed, everything that was gone. The gun, as far as I know, has never been found. Whenever they questioned this, Rose, she stated that she, uh, Jeffrey Bass called his uh, Aunt Rose, who was my dad's ex-wife, to come over before calling anyone. She made the excuse that she helped Jeffrey Bass bathe and clean Ronnie up in an attempt to save him. No, that was in an attempt to destroy all the evidence before the police got there. But so much of the police during that time were involved in with the Dixie Mafia. So it's your opinion based on on what you know and have learned since since your brother was shot that this was... uh, more than likely, in your opinion, a murder, and the police were involved in, uh, uh, shall we say, a shoddy investigation or possibly a cover-up? Yes, because I've even been told in 2013 by an investigator that he was 99.9% sure my brother was murdered by the Dixie Mafia. Your dad, you said he... uh, he drank, and he also was a gambler, liked to gamble. Oh, yes. My dad, wherever there was a card game going on, my dad was there. Now, my dad had stopped drinking when I was around 12 years old. He never drank again, but needless to say, 
I guess he doubled up on the gambling because wherever there was a get card game, anything like that, yes, my dad was involved. Even with the casinos, he loved to gamble. And generally, at least based on my experience, uh, not necessarily in uh, dealing with gambling or crime in the South, but generally speaking, that whenever you have a lot of gambling action, there's usually some type of an organized crime uh, element involved in it. Uh, And that was probably true with the Dixie Mafia and uh, in Mississippi. Yes, because it started back whenever the casinos and the, um, it was, well, strip joints, casinos, all of that was illegal back in the 60s, early 70s. The moonshine hauling the drugs, all that was very prevalent back then. And that's what led to the forms of the Dixie Mafia. This uh, Mike Gillick, he owned strip joints along the Gulf Coast, which had the new dancing and card games and legal gambling. So, And he was one that really founded the Dixie Mafia, and it got started. So that's why it did form there, yes. And also, generally speaking, the uh, the criminal element, if they can get the police on their side, uh, you know, no matter what section of the country you're in, uh, if if you have a friendly police force or some friendly judges, uh, that's obviously a, a great assistance to the crime people. It helps keep them uh, more or less immune from prosecution. So um, for organized criminals to cultivate law enforcement people or politicians or judges is uh, is certainly not a rare thing. In fact, it's quite common. You are so right, and Roy Hobbs was the sheriff, like I say, back in the 60s, and my dad was sworn in under Roy Hobbs, and of course, he was, it's notorious, and it is well known, it's documented on, if you Google Dixie Mafia 1987, it tells all of the implications and the things, and then State Line Mob 1967, it will tell you, but he was sent to prison for years for money laundering, racketeering, wire fraud, along with so many others, an attorney, Pete Hallett. He was in the law firm partner with this Judge Sherry that was murdered in 1987 that my dad was longtime bailiff for. Uh, this Mike Gillick, he founded any criminal, any felon or criminal fugitive that he befriended each one of them. That's how he got his bunch and formed the Dixie Mafia. So, yes, they were judges, lawyers, the police department. In fact, this Vincent Sherry and Pete Hallett, that's how a lot of the murder got started there was they, uh, Kirsty Nix was in prison with Bobby Joe Fabian and Mike Gillick. They had gotten sent to prison, but they were for money laundering and things, but they were running a homosexual scam out of the Angola prison in Louisiana. And the judge, Sherry, and this Pete Hallett, they were taking the money and they were representing Kirsty Nix, making him think that they were going to get him an early release because he was in for life of prison. So as Kirsty Nix and a lot of them scammed the outside homosexuals, sending pictures of young men, making them think that they were going to be their lover when they got out of prison, Pete Hallett confiscated and scammed all the money himself and blamed it on Judge Sherry. And that's how Judge Sherry got murdered, was 
Pete Hallett and them helped order the hit from inside the prison to kill them. So, yes, it was a widely known. And the police, the corners, uh, Frank Hightower was the corner that handled my brother's death. And whenever I called, one of the guys that handled one was on the jury, the jury's bailiff thing, back in 97. He told me, he said, little lady, I barely remember that case. He said if Frank Hightower was known as Suicide Hightower, he said when you wanted something done, he'd dumb it as a suicide. He said, but I told them then I didn't think that young man killed himself. Suicide Hightower. That's what he was known at. The guy told me (laughs) that he was known as Suicide Hightower. Uh, When uh, when your brother was killed, Did your father comment at that time, at the time it happened, did your father uh, share with you his opinion on on what happened to Ronnie? Did he he seem to agree it was either an accident or a suicide, or did he have doubts? My dad had doubts. We were over at a friend's house of my dad's maybe a year and a half later, and my dad asked me to go in and call this Rose, who was his ex-wife at the time, ask her if I had seen Daddy that I was in town and he wasn't home. Did she know where he was at? Daddy wanted me to do that just to see what she would say because he suspected her in this Jeffrey Bass. As Daddy was in there listening on the other phone, and as I was speaking to her, she told me she said she did not know where my dad was, but that if I would come over to her house, never telling anyone where I was going or who would bring anyone with me, that she would tell me what I wanted to know about my brother. At that point, my daddy started waving his arms, telling me to hang up the phone, hang up the phone. I hung up, and he told me to never, ever call her again, never go near her. So my dad knew. And through the years, yes, I'm truly honest to God know now that my dad did know but whenever I would call the church department to ask about my dad's, I mean, my brother's death, it would not be no more than 30 minutes an hour. My dad would call me back and ask me, what was I doing to leave it alone? Nothing was going to bring my brother back, even to the point of later saying, leave it alone before you get someone else killed. Well, that didn't mean anything to me because I did not know if the mafia and the involvement So through the years, I kept calling, but no, my dad knew, and my dad, I think, honestly knew it was Jeffrey Bass because I told him, and I implicated Jeffrey Bass and Kathy over and over and over, but my dad, out of fear for his life and fear of another child being murdered, he was afraid to say, so he just kept telling us it was suicide and to leave it alone. Let, let's uh, let's go forward uh, a few years, Phyllis, and uh, to another discussion you had in the Waffle House. This was in Gulfport in 2002, and you were talking to your dad. Uh, could you tell us what uh, what that conversation was about? Sure. My dad's birthday was November the 26th. So for as long as I was old enough to drive, I would go to my dad's for Thanksgiving and celebrate his birthday at the same time. So in 2002, Dad and I had gone to the Waffle House. They're down from the Grand Casino on Highway 90 in Gulfport. Daddy's, you know, my stepmother passed away in the early 90s, so Daddy stayed at the Waffle House. It was just a hangout that he ate lunch a lot there. He ate breakfast there. So the waitress there, Trudy Franklin, she knew the whole history of everything. But while Dad and I were sitting there eating breakfast, 
I noticed Dad kept sort of leaning, looking around me, and all of a sudden, Dad's just whole demeanor changed. And he looked down, and he mumbled, S-O-B, except he said the word out. And he kept looking. Well, I immediately turned around to see what was behind me. As I did, Daddy demanded me to turn back around. He said, don't you look back. Don't you look at that S-O-B. Well, a few minutes later, this guy stands up, and he comes past us, and he's glaring down at the table. Well, of course, me working in law enforcement, I analyzed him from head to toe. He got in his old van, and he left. As he pulled off, and my dad knew that I couldn't catch him, my dad looked at me, and he had this just stone-cold look on his face, and he said, do you know who that was? I said, no, Daddy, but I know you don't like him. He said, that was Jeffrey Bass. He said, that's the old boy that killed Ronnie. Denny, I thought my heart was going to stop. That was the first time in 36 years that my dad, who was 80 years old then, had ever mentioned that Ronnie was murdered, rather, or, you know, killed, as he stated, uh, other than suicide. I looked at my dad, and I said, why did you not tell me? I said, you know, I wanted to talk to him. Daddy said, I know you did. He said, that's why I didn't tell you. Well, I started to say something else, and Daddy just sort of put his hand up like, don't even go there. So, And I knew once my dad said that was enough. So after we, we ate or finished our breakfast, we didn't say a whole lot. Daddy was going back home. He had his car, and I had mine because I would always go on to the grocery and buy groceries before going back to Atlanta. So after Daddy left, I pretended I was getting a coat to linger back. I talked to Trudy Franklin, who was the waitress. And I guess Trudy had worked at the Waffle House for as long as I could remember. And I guess she used the term that she was like your hairdresser. She knew everything that was going on. She walked over, she looked at me, and she knew what I was going to say. She said, that was Jeffrey Bass. She said, he's the guy that your daddy has maintained that killed your brother all of these years. She said, he intimidates your daddy all the time. Said, your daddy's terrified of him. Well, and I truly feel that the statement that I made to her is one of the things I feel that got my dad murdered. I looked at her and I told her, I said, well, Trudy, you can tell Jeffrey Bass that I will walk the streets of hell until I find him and find out why he murdered my brother. Four and a half months later, I guess you could say, this was on November the 27th of 2002, April the 18th of 2003, I get a call around midnight that my father had committed suicide. I knew there was no way my dad would have committed suicide. So I got to Gulfport early in the wee hours of the morning. I met with a Gary Hargrove, who was the corner, the most arrogant, rude corner I've ever met. He would not let me see my dad. He never did, never did that whole time let me see my dad. He made the statement that my dad was... Um, had committed suicide the next morning. Now, I don't know if you want me to continue on with this, but um, the next morning after he had told me some things that was going on, I called him back. This was on a Saturday morning. I'd gotten up, was cleaning everything, trying to get everything ready for the funeral and before my kids and my brother and the grandkids got there. I called him back. And I said, Gary Hargrove, I said, I do not believe my daddy committed suicide. I said, I know my daddy didn't. He was very arrogant. He said, yes, Phyllis, your daddy did commit suicide. He said, your daddy was going to jail for 
gambling and for uh, bad checks. He said, and he said something that just totally shocked me. He said, your daddy had already ponded and gotten rid of everything in the house of any value. And I'm thinking, how could he even say something like this? I said, Gary, my dad didn't write bad checks. Well, he still maintained, and he had told me that this Cherry Learn, which was a lady that was living with my dad at the time, had only been there a couple of months. He stated that she had gone to the store to get my dad some cigarettes, and when she came back, that my dad was lying in the driveway. So as I was cleaning up the house, I went into the bedroom straightening up, and I noticed a carton of cigarettes on my dad's nightstand that had four packs of cigarettes still in that carton, never opened, Salem 100s. I went into the den where my dad lay on what we called a little, it was an antique huzzy sofa, some call it parlor sofa type thing. He always lay there looking out the door to the den. There was a, two packs of cigarettes on that nightstand. One had never been opened. One had about four to six cigarettes out of the pack. So I'm thinking, how could she have gone to get cigarettes when there's plenty of cigarettes here in the house? After he told me my dad had already sold and ponded everything of value in the house, I'm thinking how he, as a coroner, someone I had never heard my dad mention, someone I knew was not bosom buddies with my dad, how would he know what was in the house and the activities of my dad? So I go to the China cabinet. They used to have just beautiful, nice crystal china. The house, I guess you look back and can say yes. The house was your typical little three-bedroom, one-bath, red-brick home. That was everything reaped the Dixie Mafia, I guess, as far as how everything was fixed and neat and clean. So the china was gone, the crystal. My dad had beautiful Masonic and Shriner rings. He was a mason and 33-degree Shriner. Everything was gone. There was nothing there. Then I noticed my dad's car was gone. And my dad had a black Cadillac, and we used to kid Daddy about the Mafia Cadillac. It was a two-door sedan, you know, older-type Cadillac that was immaculate. So there was my dad's rings, my dad's jewelry, all of his watch, everything, the china, the crystal, pretty much everything of value was gone from the house. My dad's car was gone. So I knew that there was, there was no way my dad could have committed suicide. They gave me my dad's gun back, which was a hammerless 38 service revolver. It had a hairline trigger. They stated on the autopsy report, and I don't know if you want me to go to that part yet, Denny. Yes, uh, just finish that, and then uh, I got a, a question I want to ask you. Okay. On, when I got, I did not get the uh, the autopsy report until after 2013. Well, just here a couple of, I guess, say months back. So I did not know everything on this. But when I finally got the autopsy report, it says one recent gunshot wound to the head entering the right temple, contact exiting the left temple through the brain, no bullet in the wound, blood spatter and powder particles on both hands. Contusion abrasions to the left particle scap and the right front toe. Well, when I read that, I thought, dear God, you know, blood spatter and powder particles on both hands, that's a defense maneuver right there. I could just see my dad throwing his hands up to block himself. Uh, contusion abrasions on 
the, the right toe. My dad, when they gave me the forensic bag or the evidence bag with my dad's clothes and things in it, it had his underwear, his uh, socks, pants, his belt, billphone stuff. So I'm thinking, how could he have a contusion on his toe if he shot himself and just drops to the ground? It was more like an indication that he had possibly been drugged. Well, it's, you know, I, I had to tell you, and I'm going to ask Delilah also to chime in here, but at almost everything that's been discussed, uh, that we've discussed so far today, uh, based on my uh, background in, in law enforcement, uh, not, uh, I was never uh, an officer in Mississippi or in the southern states, but uh, it seems like almost everything we've discussed kind of reeks. It has an odor to it. Uh, from the doctoring up your uh, your the scene where your brother was killed, you know, cleaning him up, the, the gun disappears. It's just like everything here. Now, in your dad's case, uh, the the blood spatters on on both hands. Uh, it's my understanding that although he was killed or killed himself, as they said outside. Uh, there were no witnesses. Nobody saw this, so th th there was uh, no actual witnesses to the uh, to the shooting. Correct. They did finally fabricate some a couple of months ago when I finally started asking for the foyer information request. I got some forms back that they fabricated a couple of witnesses that were walking around. But yes, at the time I questioned neighbors, I was in a cast from my penny line down to my toes. I'd had surgery on my legs, so I was limited as to where I could walk and do. But none of the neighbors hurt anything. No one, even the police said that no one hurt anything. They were no witnesses. Um, I have found out in the last couple of weeks back some different issues and some things that really reeks murder on my dad's part. But no, at that time, there were no witnesses. There were no nothing. It was 4.30 supposedly in the afternoon, and my dad lived uh, at 42nd Avenue, which ran off of Highway 90. You come off of Highway 90, turning, which was a main thoroughway road through uh, Gulfport, so right down from the casinos. And my dad's was like a crossroad to get to one side to the other. So it was a very heavily traveled road. I mean, constantly. The the street was narrow. It was like you could walk next. You could almost stand on your porch and hand someone a cup of coffee off the porch. So I think that my dad was shot with the silencer, which was very prevalent with the Dixie Mafia. That was the way, that was one of the things that they did. They used the silencers. I do not think that my dad shot himself. The girl stated that when she found my dad, he was lying in, on the pool of blood. They told her to put a towel under his head, that the gun had dropped at his feet. There's been several different stories that we'll get to that when you want to get to that. But, no, my dad did not kill himself. My dad's insurance policies. I found out my dad's insurance policy was canceled in February of 2002, two months before my dad was murdered. One of his policies, the big one, was cashed out. They only left, and that was signed by an attorney friend of his, Roy Strickland, who was later involved in the Dixie Mafia himself. And I checked the signature. My dad did not sign that policy. Uh, Delilah. Yes. 
My uh, head is spinning. I, this is just an amazing story, and I know it's not a story to you, Phyllis. This is your this is your life. Um, <laughs> understand. Exactly. I I mean I don't even know where to begin. There's just so so much information, and so many things pointing in so many different directions. Um, but who who do you feel was benefiting from this? How if they if they took his his insurance policies and cashed them out, and someone obviously came and took all of his valuable things. Who do you suspect did that? You know how you can just say, I know. You know, your heart, you just know. Okay, Jeffrey Bass murdered my brother to keep my brother from leaving Mississippi in 1967 due to his knowledge of the Dixie Mafia, the involvement that was going on, being there with my dad and a bunch of them in the house. You know, and I don't know what Ronnie was involved at only 17 because a lot of them were 19, 20, 22. But anyway, you know, my dad carrying that information for 36 years and then finally knowing that my dad was had the first time in 36 years, my dad implicated Jeffrey Bass. So, therefore, they knew that my dad, see, in 1987, whenever Pete Hallett and uh, them, Judge Sherry, whenever Judge Sherry was murdered, Pete Hallett, my daddy got a call that morning to go to – he. Oh, let me get Dalia. Let me stop stuttering and get it straight. But in, this will make more sense to you. In 1987, whenever Daddy got to the courthouse that morning, Judge Sherry was supposedly to show up for court. He did not show up for court, so Daddy kept waiting and waiting. Well, they told my dad, said, Dan, court's fixing to start, and Judge Sherry hasn't gotten here. So my dad calls the office of Pete Hallett, who was law firm partner with Judge Sherry, and he asked if Judge Sherry was there. Pete told him no. Daddy said, well, something's wrong. said, I'm going to the house. My dad said he would either be here, but something's wrong. Pete Hallett told him, he said, I'll meet you there. When they got to the house, the door was ajar. Dad said they went in, and that Judge Sherry was lying there on the floor. He'd been shot four times. My dad said he went into the bedroom, and Margaret was in a kneeling position. She had been shot execution style. This is when my dad told me about the positions of the bodies, the cookies, the everything that was there, my dad told me. Then he never wanted to talk about it anymore because he got a call that afternoon to keep his mouth shut and never mentioned that he went to that house with Pete Hallett unless he or I wanted himself or another child murdered. Well, he knew that they had murdered my brother. So my dad kept this information all those years even during the trial of 1997, my dad kept me from going to Gulfport. He never mentioned the trial. He never mentioned anything because he knew that I would pick up on that story and I would possibly tell or say something. So he protected me from knowing anything about it. But, of course, I never forgot it. So when I was told of the Dixie Mafia in 2013, I mentioned it to this judge, I mean to this investigator. It all made sense. But this Jeffrey Bass, back to why you're saying Jeffrey Bass in 2002, he knew at that point my dad had just implicated him for the first time in 36 years. He knew that my dad, 80 years old, once he told him that it was a matter of time until my dad told about Pete Hallett and him finding those bodies, and Pete Hallett was up for early or up for release from prison just a few years later with John Ransom, the hitman, 
he was released from prison about four to six months after my dad was murdered. So they knew they had to shut my daddy up once he started talking because he was going to tell about he and Pete Hallett. He was going to tell about John Ransom being the hit man and him just fixing to be released for prison. So, yeah, that's why my dad was murdered. And they say that whenever another investigator, attorney friend of mine, I mean a law officer friend of mine, he and I were talking, and he said that's a lot of the way that they paid, that they knew they were going to kill my dad before they did. That's why this cherry learn was planted in my dad's house. I feel, was to find out what was being said and to find out if he was talking before they got everything done. But he said when they cash out the insurance policies, they took his car. His car has never been found. To this day, I've not ever found out who got my dad's car. His jewelry, nothing. They said that's how they pay him. They, they, that's, they give him everything, and then they tell him, go kill him. Well, Phyllis, aren't, do you have any fear that there's a target on your back? Uh, yes, all of whenever. This, that you know? There he is. Uh, Rex Armistead, luckily, I'm, I don't mean to mean that, but I say luckily, let me rephrase that. Um, he did pass away just, I think, a year ago, but I called him. He was the state trooper that knew very well of the Dixie Mafia. He was also the private investigator that Judge Sherry's family hired him to investigate the Sherry's case, which he very well did a bad job and took more or less to the Dixie Mafia side to protect them. But anyway, I called him. Once I found out in 2013, I called him. He was in Lula, Mississippi, under the name of uh, Rex Armistead. He was very old and could hardly talk, but he kept calling me back. And he told me finally, he said, little lady, do you have uh, children? I said, yes, I do. He said, then you may want to leave this alone. And I said, not ever. No, no way. Then Robert Nix, who is, uh, he's on Facebook under Robert Nix. He has a grocery buggy with a little black stick man pushing a buggy. He came on my page several times, but I had contacted him in 2013 or 14 after I found out about the mafia. And I asked him if he knew my brother or my dad or what age he was. He came back and told me he wasn't involved. I contacted Kursky Nix who was head of the Dixie Mafia, who was involved in with the Buford Pussard's wife and stuff, I wrote to him in Terre Haute, Indiana, and I told him that I knew that he was involved. I knew he knew my dad. I wasn't trying to implicate him. I just wanted to know now, after all these years, if he would tell me what happened. He wrote me back and told me that he did not know who murdered my brother and my dad, but even if he did, he would not tell because that was the code that they lived by. Uh, I've gotten several, I guess you could say, threats from this Robert Nix, who is Kersky Nix's son. And I've gotten some Facebook requests from some shady-type people. But I'm not going away. I mean, I'm just not going away. Now, I did speak with uh, Cherry Learn, who was the lady that's, I'm going to say woman. I'm not going to call her a lady. The woman that was living with my dad at the time. She told me that my dad's Cadillac was in the driveway the day that he was shot. She pulled up behind my dad's car that my dad's car was in his driveway. So I asked her, well, how could a dead man sell his car? And Roy Strickland, when the closing of my dad's house, he was there. He told me, he said, well, I'll get your dad's car back if you're going to pitch a fit. Well, I pitched a fit, but I never got it back. So I know that all these things were taken as pay for the 
gambling debt or to pay for whatever they knew that they were going to kill my dad. So all those things are gone. And no one in Mississippi will help. No one will help. I called to get his bank statements. They tell me they don't have anything. They can't, you know, there's nothing there. Um, I've called the Mississippi tag office. They will not give me any information on my dad's car as to who got my dad's car or who it was registered under after 2002 when my dad was murdered. The police department told me how many wait. Phyllis, you've been fighting for information now for years, you know, between uh, trying to find out about your brother and then later on about your father. Uh, it seems like you've, uh, between the police themselves and, and other people uh, involved uh, in other agencies, governmental agencies and so on, that, that you haven't had a great deal of cooperation. Now, in 2013, uh, you talk to this Harrison County cold case unit. Uh, do you sense that the cold case unit is applying any more effort or will apply any more effort to solving these two cases than has happened in the past? Do you see a turning or a light at the end of the tunnel, or do you think it's going to be more of the same it's going to be deceit and cover up because in 2013, when I called, I had asked for the cold case unit this time, which I had never done before. When Adam Cooper came on the phone, I only explained my brother. I did not confuse the two and mention my dad. So he did not associate me as being Lieutenant Dan Anderson's daughter. So when he came back, he told me he went and got the file. He came back and he said, Miss Cook, he said, I am 99.9% sure your brother was murdered by members of the Dixie Mafia. Well, as we talked on, I realized that my dad was also. I, he asked me if I could identify Jeffrey Dennis Bass, the guy that murdered my brother. I told him, sure. I picked him out of a six-man lineup. I positively identified him shortly thereafter. Investigator Adam Cooper went from a cold case investigator to an activity director. I sent him emails, and he never would correspond back with me, just saying, I'm out in the field or I'll get back with whatever. I sent him an email, and I told him, I said, Adam Cooper, I am so sorry that I got you reprimanded for telling me the truth. I said, but all these years, you finally took the initiative to look in the file and to tell me what happened. Well, Major Ron Poland um, he stopped everything. I called Steve Dallahousie, who was the coroner, during the Sherry's murders, and who I knew that Pete Hallett and him knew. Once I called him, he told me, he said, little lady, he said, I don't want to get involved in this again. He said, Pete Hallett and the Dixon Mafia made my life a living hell. I said, well, just please listen. So I started into talking. He had to listen or hang up, bless his heart. But um, I explained the positions of the bodies, the coffee, I mean, the milk, the cookies, he told me, he said, lady, he said, there is no way in hell you would know that information had either you or your daddy won not been in that house. He said, I knew Pete Hallett murdered them. He said, I just couldn't prove it. But no one will help. No one will come forward. Investigator Captain, no, he's in uh, Captain Craig Peterson with the Harrison County Sheriff's Department just this past week. It's like he said, well, Miss Phyllis, you just need to be patient. Well, needless to say, I was not nice. I told him patience after 50 years of being told, ma'am, we're going to investigate it. Ma'am, we'll get back with you. There's nothing. And he tells me, well, I'm, I've got a case of 49 years that I'm having to do. He said, I don't know that we even have anything. 
I sent the FOIA request. They tell me they have nothing. I said there was enough in the file for Adam Cooper to tell me he was 99.9% sure my brother was murdered. There was enough in the file for him to send me a positively lineup of the six men, lineup of the man that murdered my brother, but you've never brought him in, and now you tell me you don't know that there's anything in there? Anthony Piazio, he told me he was making copies of the file and taking it with him over to the FBI office. He was going over there when, needless to say, he never went. Alan uh, Thompson with Mississippi Bureau of Investigations, he tells me he doesn't know what he can find out or do and that he's the only one in cold case. So, no, I really don't think, Mr. Denny, that Gulfport or anyone involved, the governor's office, the Crime Stoppers, the FBI, no one is going to rock the boat in Gulfport. Mm -mm. Well, Phyllis, with with what you've been through, what you've experienced here trying to get some answers, do you see any possibility? In other words, it, it sounds like almost all your options have been exhausted. Every agency you deal with tells you they can't get involved or they can't find anything or to keep clear of it. Uh, where can you go from here? Unless I can get media coverage, and I'm hoping that one day somebody I have contacted Dateline, uh, I know that Robert Wells had mentioned that he wanted to try to see if ABC would possibly have media coverage. I did write to ID Discovery. I've contacted Jim Seeley with ID Discovery and that Joe Kenda. But, you know, unless I can get someone to come forward and help with some media coverage, now I'm hoping that Robert Wells, that his group, which is a volunteer group, but if they can get enough information to get a grand indictment where we can get the case reopened, get a change of venue to get it out of Mississippi, that is the only thing that I think will give me any results at all. So, like I say, unless I can get someone to help me get some media coverage on this and someone to help, I really don't know, Mr. Denny. You know, I I don't know, but I know I'm not giving up. Now, Phyllis, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, uh, you know, you do uh, run a Facebook page called Seeking Justice for Ronnie and Daddy. Uh, Now, you have, I know, more information posted there. Could people reach you or send you a message through that Facebook page? They can. Or I have an email of Cheyenne, and that is C-H-Y-A-N-N-E. That's my personal email, and it's Cheyenne1247 at att.net, and I've even put my number out there, 678-506-4082. I do not mind anyone calling me. I have nothing to hide, and I'm not going to run. You know, this is something that, and most of them have my address because I had written several things to the Gulfport Police Department. So, you know, they, they're very aware of where I live, my phone number. I know this. And there's been some strange activity and things happen. But, yes, if someone could contact me, please call me, 678-506-4082, or email me at Cheyenne1247att.net, and they can private message me on Facebook. I'm under Phyllis Cook, Murdered in Mississippi, and Seeking Justice for Ronnie and Daddy. We've run out of time here. We're going to have to wrap it up. But, um we really appreciate you being on with us and sharing what is a very troubling story. And, and uh, you know, I can do nothing but uh, congratulate you and admire you for your tenacity in staying with us because a lot of people would have given up um, and dropped the ball some time ago. And, 
you know, the best of luck. I certainly hope that the break comes your way and uh, you can get this thing moving. Uh, and I agree, I think media probably is your, your best bet at this point to uh, to get the thing, uh, you know, regenerated and, and maybe some activity. But uh, thanks Sue, so much for being with us, Phyllis, and the best of luck to you. And I hope that you'll keep us informed if anything changes. Oh, honey, I will, and thank you and Delilah both for having me on the show and for being so tentative and listening to my story. Well, thank you, Phyllis. Well, you're welcome. And, and, and stay safe out there, okay? Oh, honey, I'm trying. <laughs> Say is it, but okay. not, I just give up. That was my little brother and my daddy, so, you know, like I tell him, I'll never give up. Okay, thanks again, fellas, and also thanks to our listeners. And until next time, stay safe. Thank you. Um, well, there's a mommy and a daddy, right? Right. And see, when they call Geico, uh, they could save a bunch of money on car insurance. Oh, really? And that makes them happy? Yes, that makes them very happy. That's good. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we could have this talk, sunshine. <laughs> Geico, because saving 15% or more on car insurance is always a great answer.